Chenmark is a name many of you will know. The three founders of the Maine-based Holdco quit Wall Street in 2015 to go out and buy small businesses to hold and operate forever. Today's guest, Trish Higgins, is one of those founders. Trish and her two partners are often on panels and podcasts, including Acquiring Minds, episode 55, doing more high-level talks about Holdco's small business acquisition, search, but I had Trish on today just for story time. <laughs> I wanted to hear about a particular acquisition, that of Captain Fish's Cruises, a boat tour business in Maine. Even for Chenmark, whose founding principle was to take the road less traveled, this seemed like such a funky, unlikely, and frankly, unappealing business. I wanted to understand what Trish saw that I didn't. Well, she delivered. You're going to learn a lot about what to look for in these businesses. And by the way, we do actually get into some high-level stuff about Chenmark overall. I couldn't resist. So the actual story part of the interview doesn't start until around minute 20. Please enjoy this awesome conversation with Trish Higgins, co-founder of Chenmark. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Trish Higgins, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Trish, you are a partner and co-founder at Chenmark, the well-known and widely respected firm in our world here of small business acquisition. Our very Chenmark, small world. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Chenmark has acquired since 2015, when you all really got started, nine platform companies, over 30 acquisitions total. So that's the nine plus a couple dozen bolt-ons and, and tuck-ins. And now count 450, probably north of 450 employees across the Chenmark family of companies. So quite, uh, quite an active uh, seven or so years. Um, most of the listeners will probably already be familiar with both you personally and, uh, and Chenmark. Um, but indulge me and just give a quick bio on yourself and, and on, and on the, the Chenmark operation, please. Sure. Well, I think probably the biggest... Uh addition I'd make to the overview of the stats is uh, um, nine platforms, 30 plus acquisitions, 450 plus employees, and two kids during that period. So we yes. have been, uh, it's been a busy seven years. Um, yes. But Important clarification. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but so um, I started Chenmark along with my husband, James, and, and brother-in-law, Palmer, um, back in 2015. We had... Um, more of a traditional finance background. 
um, not really anything to do with evaluating companies, oddly enough. Um, you know, so we weren't investment bankers. We were not in private equity. Um, so we were more in like the uh, trading side of the market. Palmer did um, equity, uh, was an equity research analyst. So he had the most sort of experience making models and things like that. Um, but James was a currency trader. Uh, and I was a research analyst at a global macro uh, hedge fund. So uh, pretty different uh, to what we're doing today, um, but it actually really provided us with a really good sort of foundation and um, analytical thinking and um, evaluating new ideas and um, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I went to business school. Um, I did not take any classes in the search space while I was there. Uh, I, I did ab- Basically, none of my coursework was at all relevant to um, small business operations. Uh, so I get a lot of phone calls from people in business school who are thinking about what to do. And um, I always tell them that they are way ahead of the game because when I was there, I uh, wasn't thinking, asking those questions at all. So uh, a couple of years post-business school, um, you know, I think all in our different way, we were all feeling like we wanted to do something a little different. Um, both one, um, you know, we had this sort of idea of buying a small business came up through like a couple different ways. And, you know, first and foremost, um, we, we thought it had interesting, um, economic characteristics, you know, financial returns. We thought it was a pretty interesting space, very fragmented, very inefficient ability to, to, um, buy companies, um, at, at relatively low valuations, um, hold them for the long term. Um, so, so from a financial investment thesis perspective, we thought this was an interesting space to sort of spend uh, a career. Um, mm-hmm. It certainly we don't think is a get rich quick space, uh, but it is um, an interesting space we think to, to build a career in. Um, and then just on the personal side of things. We all felt in our own way that we wanted to do something where we had a bit more of an impact. Um, we wanted, you know, we, we felt that we'd had the privilege of going to some really great schools and working with some, you know, phenomenal bosses that we learned a lot from. Um, but we sort of felt like we were just sitting at a desk and we wanted to get out and say like, hey, you know, we have these ideas about things that might work, um, you know, from a leadership perspective, from a business perspective, from an operations perspective. Um, but, but how do we, how, how would those translate in the real world? And the, the idea of becoming more involved in small businesses made us, it was really exciting to us just on a personal level. And we've said many times that even if Chenmark doesn't work out from a financial perspective, because maybe it will, maybe it won't. You never know what, what's going to happen. We have had so many interesting experiences, both good and bad, that uh, our lives have been much more interesting than I think they would have been otherwise. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very thankful for, for the experiences we've had uh, in all of the craziness of the small business world. So uh, that's pretty much the, the, the big picture stuff. Uh, we've been sort of a couple of the kind of the, the big things about us that I think are um, important to our model is that we're very focused on long-term ownership. So when we buy companies, we don't really think about an exit. We just think, you know, is this company something that we think we can own for the long term, can generate cash flow over the long term? 
um, and will it be around? So sort of what's the long-term durability of demand um, for this business? So that's a, a really big one for us. Um, the, the second one is that um, you know, our goal has been a holding, you know, we're, we're in a holding company structure that came around a couple of years after we started. And we have been using the cash flows from our businesses to, to buy the next business. And mm-hmm. when we first got into the space, um, we, we really were committed to the idea of building a portfolio of small businesses. And at the time, that was not a popular idea. And people, you know, really were focused on sort of the single searcher model. And, you know, I think one of the benefits for not having gone through more of the the traditional uh, search uh, education uh, is that we we sort of came at it with our own perspective. And um, especially in the early days, that idea can have um, some challenges because it it takes some time to kind of get a company, you know, to build a portfolio of, of companies. You first have to start with one and, and then the next and then the next. And, and it can take a while to, to, to build it up, I think, at least in a sustainable way that, that made sort of sense for us. Uh, but we um, we have really focused on creating this portfolio, using the cash flows from business one to buy business two, then the cash flows from business one and two to buy third and so on and so forth. And so we have not... Um, you know, we haven't raised a fund. Um, we don't really work with external capital providers, and our growth really relies on the success um, of our businesses. And so, we're very invested in in our businesses um, in terms of, of how they do. And um, if they do well, then overall Chenmark can grow. And if they don't, then we'll kind of uh, you know spin our wheels for a little while. So, mm-hmm. I'd say those are kind of the two really big um, important um, aspects of our approach and our model that you know. A, as I mentioned before, this is a very uh, fragmented, inefficient space. So there are a lot of other people who have different models that kind of that work for them and uh, for the three of us um, and what our objectives are, um, the sort of long-term holding company internally cash flow generated funded growth uh, kind of made sense for us. And that has, I think it's kind of cool for us because that was really our plan um, you know, at the very beginning when we were just putting this down on, on paper, when it was just an idea. And uh, that's pretty much um, still very much our guiding vision. So uh, it, we've gotten a lot of other things wrong and had to adjust. But those those big things have uh, have have stayed true for um, so far. So that's encouraging. The um, if, if if I can distill kind of your three goals or, or the three themes of y- your thesis going into this were a financial one, an interestingness one, and an impact one. And I, and I know that, uh, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but for the benefit of the audience, um, I think you've said already that it's been very interesting. Um, I know um, I, Palmer answered when uh, Palmer and James were on the pod in January, Palmer death was emphatic about the impact has been just working with people much more closely than from a cubicle on Wall Street um, is just unquestioned there. That the, so the impact, check that box in a big way. And then financially, you know, from from those of us on the outside, it sure seems like uh, financially it's it's working out. Is it? Uh, I know it's not. You know, yeah. the story isn't over yet. But it, it you, you continue to make acquisitions. We're going to get into that in here in a minute. Um, does it look good financially? 
Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The Lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, the Lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Yeah, you know, it probably depends on your perspective a little bit on like, what's your definition of financial success? Um, And I would say that it is being internally funded and and having a long-term vision kind of means, you know, I think none of us feel that we're financially successful because we feel that we still have an incredibly long ways to go um, in in our journey because we we intend to do this kind of for for decades. And so, you know, seven years in is is still relatively early and we still feel very much like we're just starting. Um, Also, when you're, um, you know, internally uh, funding deals, you know, there is a zero-sum game between um, the owner's cash compensation and the amount of cash that's in the business uh, to fund growth. You know, so every dollar that I take out, uh, you know, James Palmer and I take out to, you know, whatever, fund our own personal lives is is a dollar that could stay in the business and compound and be available for the next level of growth. So I would say from a increase in the equity value of, of Chenmark, I, we've been, you know, I would say quite successful. Um, but if you are looking at it from a, uh, maybe like a business school classmate perspective where people talk about, you know, how much income do they make? Um, you know, candidly, James Palmer and I make very little income um, because we prefer to keep most of it uh, in, in the, in, in the business. And, and that's a choice. Um, but it would depend if you're talking about, you know, financial success from a, you know, personal income statement perspective, I would say probably not that great. From a personal balance sheet perspective, I would say it's very attractive. So it kind of depends on what your definition is and what you're trying to maximize. Yeah, our definition is definitely net worth perspective, not income, since that since yeah. that is, as you said, discretionary. You can choose to capture a lot of the more a, a lot of that cash flow more than you do because you reinvest. Yeah, well, I, the thing that I I think that's important to highlight though because um a lot of people that I speak with are interested in the the holding company structure um, in this space, and I think that you know they're comping it against their opportunities to go work at a private equity fund or something mm-hmm. like that. And I yeah. think that if you're thinking about that as your alternative, you know you're going to make more cash compensation in the next five years going down that path. I would say, like, no doubt. If you're looking at it in terms of maximizing the potential for your net worth the next 20 years, then I would say a Chenmark-esque model is is more 
relevant or, or, or has a higher upside, but th- those differences can be meaningful depending on, you know, your lifestyle choices and needs and um, potentially what your classmates are making and all that sort of stuff. So I think some people realistically don't want to make that trade-off in the, in the near term. And yeah. uh, so it's just, I, I, I like to highlight that point because for people who are interested in getting in the space, um, they have to feel comfortable knowing that, especially in the beginning of getting your flywheel uh, started, um, you're essentially the last to get paid. And um, if you have expensive tastes, it's, it's, uh, it could be challenging for you. Sure. You know, when I hear you say all of that, Trish, I, I f- and you just said this yourself, I feel like you're talking very much to a business school audience, people who are considering investment banking or private equity. Um, but if you're talking to you know, an entrepreneur who might be considering this path of entrepreneurship versus another one, they're like, well, obviously in the first few years, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be ramen profitable. So that doesn't sound so bad. In fact, that sounds kind of like expected. Um, and I, and I like to think and hope that a lot of the acquiring minds audience isn't, I know a lot of my listeners are in the business school crowd, but I also try to, um, have a, have a wider uh, listener base as well. So maybe some mid-career professional who's not in the finance world, who's maybe in tech or any other walk of life in considering buying a small business. And if they learn about what you've done and are doing, uh, and they're not, you know, their, their, um, comparison is not a private equity career. It's almost, almost anything else. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it probably looks, um, quite attractive even sooner than 10 or 20 years out. Yes. Do you, yeah. Would you, would you agree? Absolutely. Again, it kind of goes back to what your comps are and 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 how you're defining success and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So, I would certainly agree with you. It depends on you know what your um, you know what your alternatives are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to ask one more follow up question on the history of Chenmark. Then mm-hmm. um, I don't, then we'll get into the story. I'm I'm really burying the lead here, but um, the. The fact that you all have the model that you're referring to, the the, the Chenmark kind of holding, uh, hold co permanent equity style model, um, is not really what's taught in business schools, uh, and 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 you're kind of thankful that you didn't take those classes because maybe it would have oriented you in a different direction versus kind of just looking at things from your own perspective, your own kind of first principles perspective. Why do you think there is that divergence between what's taught and the way you guys have done it and because the way you guys have done, I mean, you guys are really held out as this exemplar of this really cool path of, of buying small businesses. And yet, um, yeah. And yet, and yet it's not what's taught. Why, why the, why the, why the disparity there? Yeah. Well, I think that the small business space, whenever you have a space that's super fragmented, you know, hundreds of thousands of these small businesses, um, the, you know, the traditional mo- mental model that, you know, was the first to come up was person goes out, buys one business, and that's kind of has worked and and that's been the traditional path. Um, and so I think that when it comes to, you know, a lot of the business school professors are also investors and they also went down that path themselves before they became professors. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that path, but, you know, essentially, you know, they're being you know, they're, they're teaching what they know and, and they're teaching a model that, you know, has worked for a lot of people and they're familiar with. And, you know, it might also be a model that, you know, people want to, you know, they want to invest in themselves. And so I think that, you know, part of it is just where are the most available models coming from? And, and, and that's what's being taught, you know, which is totally fine and totally legitimate, you know, nothing wrong with that. 
Um, I also think, and I don't know that this is a specifically a business school thing, but from an investor standpoint, you know, we were very lucky in that we didn't rely on traditional search investors, um, partly because none of them were interested in us uh, when we started. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that those investors, uh, a lot of them like to think that they're the ones doing the diversifying. So if I'm a search fund investor, you know, I might invest in 30 searches and, and my portfolio is diversified. I don't need somebody else to diversify for me. And yeah. actually, when we were first starting and talking about this holding company concept, we actually did get that feedback from other people, you know, from potential investors saying, I don't want you to diversify. You know, I, I, I that's my job as as the allocator and like your job is to go find a company and try to make money for me um and so i think there's a little bit of a tension and kind of like whose role is it to do the diversification uh and from our perspective that was something we wanted to own was the diversification um but i think a lot of traditional investors they like they're the asset allocators you know and they're mm-hmm. looking for ex- they're looking for executors more than investors Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you all are this kind of funky hybrid. I mean, you're definitely executors uh, and operators yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. But I think we started from very much an investment capital allocator mindset, and we still are very mindful of that. And so we've kind of blended both of those roles. But, um, you know, most people who are going into search aren't thinking about asset allocation. And do you think, how important do you think that uh, orientation is? Holdco's are hotter and hotter. There's going to be the Holdco conf. I assume you're speaking there or you'll, you'll, you'll be getting it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so it's just, um, more and more appealing to people. And, and, and part of the reason the attention has come more and more to Chenmark. Um, but I don't think all of the folks interested in the Holdco necessarily are, um, first and foremost investors or have that investor mindset as much as you all do. How, how important do you think that is to the model that somebody be investor first operator second? Honestly, I don't think that's that important because we kind of came up with our, our investment thesis, you know, basically in 2014 and it stayed the same. So we certainly get, you know, inbound from more sort of like Wall Street analyst types um, who want to come work at, you know, quote unquote HQ, which would be very disappointed if they saw and, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, and help us with quote unquote asset allocation and, and it's like, you know, we don't, we, we don't really need that. There's actually not that much work to be done in that area, at least at our scale, at our size now. Like that is not a full-time job. That's just, you know, we have some guiding principles that, that hold true and then we execute within those guiding principles. So I would say, you know, if a person has, I'd say that being an executor is much, much more important. And if a person can kind of figure out their, again, their guiding principles for how they want to you know, allocate um, the capital that's either given to them by investors or that their company has generated, um, you know, they, 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 they'll they be fine. I don't think it's necessarily that important as long as, you know, we had, we had no experience being operators or executors and, you know, we learned, you know, and are learning how to do that and um, it's something you can pick up. So I assume people can pick it up the other way as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's get into the story for today. 
which is we're, we're going to talk about a particular acquisition, um, one that was uh, challenging in a lot of different ways. A real, I think a really um, interesting class, just kind of classic, classic, small, scrappy business. So I'm, I'm, I think this will just be a really fun conversation. And that business is <clears throat> Captain Fish's Cruises, which is a that's tourism two business. Two apostrophes in one name is tricky, but that's what we got. Hard, hard to spell. I mean, yeah, clearly they never hired a, a marketing agency, which is, which is, you know, part of the magic of all of this. You acquire the business in February 2020. We all know what happened a month later. So this is going to be a roller coaster of a story. It's in tourism. So, of course, tourism was one of the first industries to be hammered the hardest. Um, so tell us first about Captain, what is Captain Fish, Captain Fish's? Well, Captain Fish is actually a person. We literally bought oh. the business from Captain Fish. Uh, so, <laughs> Captain um, Fish. <laughs> Cap yeah, Captain Fish. Uh, right. uh, so uh, a very literally named uh, company. Um, but it was um, it was actually a business, boat tour business in Midcoast, Maine, that had been in that family for three generations, um, taken different forms, but, you know, is it was pretty pretty uh, long history in the area, which which is pretty neat. Uh, I think they trace yeah. it back to starting in 1936, which is pretty pretty oh, cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and so um, you know, uh, Captain Fish was running it. Um, his children weren't, you know, had grown up and just weren't interested in in, in taking over operational role, and he was looking to retire. Um, it actually was listed with, uh, you know, a local business broker, um, somebody that, that we'd met and sort of saw the, uh, the listing and, you know, kind of, it, it fit our kind of roughly our valuation metrics and, you know, called the broker who we knew and we're saying, you know, what's more about this? And he's like, well, it's actually, you know, boat tour and whale watches and sightseeing. And we were like, huh, like never had thought about that industry before. Um, and, it was, you know, it's right in our backyard. If, if it had been further away, we would have never looked at it. Um, but, you know, it was an hour away from our house. So, like, you know, why not go up and, and take a look and, and dig in a, a little deeper? And, and at the time, um, I was running our search process. Um, so I kind of had the discretion to, to take more of a look at it. Um, and I personally had been in that role. But I found myself every time we were looking at a business saying like, oh, I'd like to run that or I wouldn't like to run that or that'd be interesting. And uh, one company we'd look, been looking at previously, I'd, I'd been seriously considering stepping into the CEO role for that one, which um, unfortunately that deal fell apart. So it didn't happen, but it was certainly something that was kind of top of mind. And in this business, um, it, is, it is not really a great search business. Um, in that it doesn't really fit a lot of the characteristics searchers are looking for. Um, you know, no recur, you know, no contracted revenue, um, highly seasonal, a lot of staff turnover. Um, you know, those are all things yeah. that would probably make, you know, if you were going to a traditional search fund or an accelerator or something, they would be like, absolutely not. Um, you know, which is fine because that's what's great about this space. Something that's interesting to me is not interesting to you and uh, vice versa. And so we, uh, let's see, so we met the owner, you know, came to, came to um, uh, agreement on the terms. He, he was honestly one of the best um, 
owners that we've worked with in terms of, you know, everyone has their little things, but he was very um, professional and um, reasonable. And whenever we had a, you know, differing opinions, we kind of figured it out. So, you know, honestly, it was, it was actually a really great, probably the easiest transactional experience we've had. Hmm. Um, I, Which, I have I mean, to say, I, from the outside, I would a guy who's selling his family business. He's the third generation yeah. owner. His name is Captain Fish, so you know I, I would it assume he's a, he's he's colorful. He's got his name on it. How, how, yeah. give, give us some um, some metrics on the business. How many employees is it when in season <laughs> and then out of season? Is there a management layer? Give me some, you know, give us and, and then yeah. what does it do day to day? How many how many boats does it have? Yeah, how many yeah. um, tickets does it sell? All that stuff. So, um, we have two boats and a parking lot. Um, so if you ever need to get, uh, some thick skin, go work in the parking lot for a day. Never had people swear at you more than when I've worked in a parking lot. Um, oh. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, so two boats, um, 149 passengers each. Um, and in the season we'll run kind of anywhere in a normal season, 30 to 40,000 passengers um, in season. Now, highly seasonal. So we're open um, mid-May through mid-October um, with the big months, probably over 50% of revenue or July and August. So highly seasonal. Uh, and the business really shuts down in the wintertime. So when we uh, purchased it, it had one full-time employee who was a, a captain who was also um did you know boat maintenance and helped out with stuff in, in the winter time so you know another thing that probably wouldn't make a searcher feel that great uh with like no employees essentially uh, and i think that it was our let me think about this our sixth business our seventh okay. sixth or seventh business that we bought and so it's actually one thing that's nice about the holding company is um, concept is that, yes, there were all these things that, you know, highly concentrated revenue from a seasonality perspective, lack of middle management, um, it, like no contracted revenue, like all of these things kind of build up. And if it had been a first deal we'd looked at, we probably wouldn't have gotten comfortable with those risks. But given that we had other businesses, we felt comfortable taking more risk on some of these things because we felt some of the other dynamics kind of um made up for it um and so uh you know it kind of allowed us to take a bit more risk um so so, so for the the individual acquisition entrepreneur out there not the searcher necessarily maybe a searcher yeah. but maybe, yeah, but maybe, me, maybe not. kind of a search fund business business school type but maybe just you know, a searcher who's going to get an SBA loan. This yeah. this has maybe a riskier profile than maybe they want to take on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and so it, then uh, it, I think I answered all the, you know, the big yep. questions um, in terms of metrics of, of, of the business. Um, you know, it's really about, you know, we hire a lot of, um, college kids, seasonal summer work. Um, so, you know, we will thankfully have some people come back year after year, either like 
you know, they worked for us between freshman and sophomore year and kind of work out that way. Um, or, or people who live locally and are looking for a summer job for a couple of days a week, things like that. So, um, in the first year though, we had pretty much like full turnover. Um, so, uh, yeah, some, some challenges with having to train everybody like from brand, you know, from, from no, no experience. Um, we'd also uh, change the ticketing system. So, um, you know, a lot of a big learning curve in that in that first year. And so uh, we bought the business in the end of February of 2020, mm. um, like one week before COVID hit. Um, and so, you know, that was unfortunate. Um, the nice thing about the business from a financial perspective is that, you know, one nice thing about not having a, you know, a management team is that you really don't have much payroll. Uh, so that is good. And you don't have a lot of operating expenses, uh, when you are, uh, not open. Um, and so, you know, you do, you do burn cash, um, throughout the season and then typically the month before you open up. So April, May, you do burn quite a lot of cash, um, in terms of getting the boat ready. So boat expenses, um, anyone's owned a boat, you know, that they're not cheap. And so, you know, you have to painting and maintenance work and all sorts of stuff like that. And for us, we're Coast Guard inspected via a vessel. So we have to have Coast Guard inspections and dry docks and all these things. So that is, uh, um, you know, kind of certainly burns cash um, before you start to make money again. Um, And so we, you know, you know, candidly, we, we, you know, if it had just been that company again in, in 2020, we would have had a fair number of issues with, um, you know, bank compliance and, and things like that. But again, being part of a larger entity, we could kind of buffer some of that. And so when COVID hit, my goal was to really not lose money. Um, and so I, we sort of had to, well, first we were just closed. So we missed the beginning of our season. So in the state of Maine, we were just shut down. Um, and then we had, a in, in our state, we had a restriction of 50 people, um, as a gathering sort of hard stop, which to be honest, was quite frustrating because, um, that's a third of our capacity of the boat. And there were other boats in our area that had like a 59 person capacity limit and they could still also have 50 people, which like didn't really make any sense to us um, because obviously those 50 people were much closer together. You know, we said, okay, you know, thankfully we'll be allowed to open um, basically uh, late June. Um, And what can we, um, so how can we be profitable at a 50 person max? And so at first we were saying, well, is anyone going to show up? And so that was a big question mark. Um, But actually people were so desperate to get outside and do stuff that we actually, you know, really had a lot of sold out trips that season at that 50 person capacity, which was, which was really great. And, you know, we could still turn a profit at at 50. And so, um, which is just great. Um, I didn't know that going in, but, oh, I kind of knew what break evens were. So uh, that was good. But the one thing we really did and focused on as, as a team was saying, okay, what's our break even by, trip type, um, because we run a number of different types of trips. Um, And so, you know, what's the fuel expense by trip? Um, What are the labor costs by trip? All all those sorts of things. And um, being very disciplined on, you know, if if we just don't have 
enough people to, to break even on a certain trip. You know, it's got to come down. It's got to be canceled or we have to merge it into a different trip or be very, very proactive with essentially like per trip unit economics. Um, and so I figured we would track per trip down to the gross profit. And I'd say, okay, you know, this trip made some, some you know, what's whatever, it made $800 of gross profit for us. And that's, you know, some contribution to our overhead. And um, we were able to keep uh, overhead very, very lean. You know, we essentially spent nothing on marketing. Um, you know, really anything that wasn't an essential expense, we, we just was done. Um, and I myself worked a lot in the business um, uh, in terms of parking lot, ticket booth, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, in a way that first season was, um, you, you know, sort of stressful, I guess, or challenging from like the COVID perspective. Um, in retrospect, it was from operationally, it was sort of a gift in that I was brand new to the business and it wasn't as busy as it usually is. So I had more time post-acquisition to season start to get up to speed on on how everything um, you know ran and all that sort of stuff. And then in season, we weren't as busy. So we also had a lot of new hires. And so we sort of, it was kind of like a training wheels season. Um, and that's how we kind of um, tried to think of it. And it also um, for, so I hired a general manager. Um, so that was my first hire, the, the captain um, who had been the full-time employee. Uh, he uh, stayed on, has been wonderful. Um, and then also hired a woman who'd been working in the ticket booth um, previously uh, to come on and help us with a lot more sort of guest services, policies, website stuff, things like that. Um, and I think that the COVID experience kind of helped us um, come together more as a team because we went through this sort of weird, uh, you know, situation together. Uh, and so... I think that was great. So yeah, that was basically our, our first season um, and, and the, the um, transaction uh, overview. And so if you were, give me a sense of the profitability of the business. I mean, you, you made an important point that like when it's not operating, there's not a lot of fixed cost. So um, there, there is that, but it still strikes me that for a tourism business that all, but, you know, ceases operations right as you're coming into season, um, it, it still strikes me that the fact you were able to even not only survive, but be profitable, um, says something about the profitability of the business or the, yeah, just how, kind of how attractive the, the financials are of the business. Am I, am I right in that intuition? What, what is in a normal yeah. year, how profitable is the business? Yeah, in, in a normal year, um, I'm not going to get into like the specific numbers because uh, that's all um, confidential with the um, old owner and whatnot. Um, but it certainly is a, a profitable business. Um, it's it's really it's like an airline in that you're you know once you're we, you know, we think about it in terms of load factor. So if you have 149 people on a boat, um, and uh, you know it only takes. 20 or so to break even from a gross profit perspective, then, you know, every single one on, on top of that um, uh, is essentially, you know, once you cover your overhead, you know, drops, you know, directly to the bottom line. We also um, have been 
um, pretty, I think, focused on pricing, um, especially in 2020. As soon as I realized like, hey, like all of the trips are selling out, like prices have to go up. I was probably actually a little slow on that side of things, but we've been increasing prices, which also, you know, basically drops, you know, directly to the bottom line. But, you know, the business has, you know, essentially, you know, of the, you know, of the, you know, we look for businesses between one to three million um, of EBITDA and look to buy them between three and five times. And this certainly fits in that range. So it's a, it's a good business from that perspective. And when we were talking earlier about how this probably felt a little riskier than maybe somebody's first acquisition or from a certain, from a traditional search fund perspective or kind of MBA, you know, a search investors perspective, it wouldn't be appealing. You know, as you just talk about the seasonality and how that works, like why is seasonality necessarily so unappealing, at least academically? That's a great question. I don't have really any issues with seasonality, um, but I'm also, I think I'm quite good at budgeting. So I don't have a problem with it. Um, I think that, you know, other people get concerned, banks get concerned with seasonality um, because they feel like, hey, you know, you have all of these months of of negative cash flow. And so that makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, And, you know, if you're not good at managing your cash balance. So let's say, you know, you go through the season and come October, say you have a million dollars of cash sitting in the bank. You know, some people might pay themselves out, you know, a huge dividend or they might buy something and they can, you you might, I think people get concerned that you can, in October, November, you might think you can afford things that you actually can't uh, because you have six months of all of your various payments um, to, to make and that come, you know, sort of March you're going to have no cash and then you're not going to make your payments or you're not going to make your distributions to investors or whatever you need to have. So I feel that it's really, if you can manage cash appropriately, I feel like who cares if you make it all in one day versus 365? Like, I don't care. But I think people get concerned that that cash, that's, well, two things, that cash is generated is going to be managed well. And then if something happens, you know, God forbid, you know, one of our boats, you know, knock on wood, goes down, you know, with some mechanical issue for three weeks in August, you know, that would be a huge hit to our financial performance for that year. And so you are taking operational risk and like condensing it into a short period of time. And, uh, you know, that's just an additional uh, risk factor. You know, I certainly, we had an issue last year where, um, one of the, our captains um, unfortunately left us, you know, right before the July 4th uh, holiday. And so finding a captain uh, on short notice, right heading into busy season is a very, very hard thing to do. And we ended up having to pull down a bunch of trips um, until we could find the right person to um, to fill that role. And, you know, that is a financial hit. If that had carried on, you know, that could really have ruined our season. And, um, you know, so so I think that, it, it again, it's just a it's a risk factor and uh, is something that other people you know might not feel as comfortable with. And and in this business in particular, the other obvious risk that jumps out at me is 
the one you just mentioned, you're, you're precisely because you have such low overhead and have so few full-time employees, uh, and you have the, the one, really the one full-time employee, um, you know, yeah, that, that that's obviously a, a, a screaming vulnerability. Um, yeah. and you know, that, that strikes me as actually enough to scare even Chenmark off, um, mm -hmm. Uh, just because it's, you know, so much, yeah, it's just like all of your eggs in this, in this, I mean, if he had walked on the first day or said, you know, triple my salary in the first day. Um, so yeah, you know, how did you wrap your head around that? Yeah. Um, to be honest on that side of things, that was probably just a, a bit of, uh, being naive. <laughs> um, I felt that, well, first of all, again, we'd had a really good experience with the owner, to the level where I, I trusted him. Um, and he told me that the, the, the guy who was staying on was good, was great. And, and to be honest, he has been wonderful and great. And, you know, it, it, it's worked out really, really well. And I've said many times, I'm very lucky that that was the situation. Um, if it hadn't been, uh, you know, I would have certainly been in a bind and had to find, you know, probably somebody else or, you know, it just, it would have been a lot harder for sure. Um, so I mean, honestly, on that side of things, like a little bit of luck combined with kind of feeling out, you know, Hey, um, you know, it seems like, even though I haven't met this person, um, it seems like a, a sort of decent risk to take, but still was, you know, a little nerve wracking in that first, you know, like couple months. I, I like that you, the first thing you answered was to essentially that the, the trust that you had in the seller, because that's the theme that comes up so often. It's like a lot of the risk we're taking is is that. Um, yeah. And if he, he's vouching for this guy, you know, you, you're you're really kind of banking on that. Um, right. The the just um, the financial characteristics of this business that you all liked is do you think they are particular to cap captain fish or do you think boat tour businesses in general can you extrapolate from captain fish that these are attractive these are attractive businesses and um would would you know are opportunities that that we acquisition entrepreneurs should look at um well don't look at them unless i've looked at them first um uh but um <laughs> uh so yes and no so we certainly we've looked at other companies in the space um a lot of them have boats that are worth more than the business um and so we we will see that sometimes in landscaping things like that people will have more equipment like the equipment is worth more than the multiple on the business so you know you we might you know i've certainly looked at somewhere it's like hey you've got 300,000 of EBITDA. So what am I going to pay for that? Like at most three times, right? But your boat is worth $2 million. Yeah. Like, so, so I would say a large amount of companies in the space have that problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other people I know who have bought businesses in the space where they have not, they've gotten around that by not buying the boat. They've leased the boat um, from the owners. Um and that's not really something that we have explored or wanted to do because the boat is so essential to the business um, that we really want to feel like we we own that and own our destiny um, on that side of things. So it hasn't really been something that we've been interested um, or like gone down that path at all. Um, the other thing that can be very difficult um, in the boat space is um, dockage. So, you know, some boat 
tours own their docks, which this one did, um, which means, you know, you really have control over your destiny. Um, a lot of boat tour operators um, lease and um, don't have particularly favorable leases and they don't have long leases. And so that's really hard from our perspectives to get around because it could be like, hey, man, like this is a great boat, boat business makes a million dollars a year or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's a year to year lease. I, I've, heard, I've seen some boat companies have month to month leases. Um, or in some um, regions, it's really the people who own the piers who have the control. So they might do year-to-year leases, but take 20% of the revenue, things like that. Um, and so we certainly have become a lot more familiar with different geographies and, and the norms and what's you know interesting. And uh, I think that you can certainly find pockets of opportunity, um, but... I wouldn't say that it's like, oh, you know, every boat tour that's out there is is attractive because there's a lot of those sorts of things. There's also a lot of boats out there that um, might look good financially, but the boat owner um, has not taken care of the boat particularly well. So, you know, again, maybe it's a, you know, let's say it makes $500,000, um, but you can kind of tell like, hey, it's going to need an entirely new engine or it's going to need all this stuff. You know, it's, that it's it's just you're going to have to spend so much getting the boat up to speed. Because if you don't spend, you know, the amount you should be spending annually, it really catches up with you. And you're going to have a boat that's in poor condition. And um, that's certainly not something that we want to um, face. And so that that's another thing. So it's kind of it's a like. There, I think, I think it's a little bit more bait and tackle e um, than some other, in, like maybe landscaping, for instance. Like you can find some of these hidden gems, but I'm not sure like anyone's going to be going out and doing like a huge boat tour, like roll up or anything like that, because it is very um, more. It's much more like case dependent than it seems. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, owning the boat or leasing the boat owning the dock or leasing the dock and then condition of the boat. And then of course, uh, demand, sustained demand, uh, yeah. is, is always, always a huge question in every business. Um, the good thing yeah. about a consumer business is you can look online at reviews. And in the, ca mm -hmm. the case of Captain Fish, uh, as of two hours ago, there were 2,341 reviews on TripAdvisor, solid five stars. So that's awesome. Um, did, did you, do you use that as a proxy for anything? Uh, yeah. And how, yeah. how did you get, and how did you, I mean, a three generation year old business. I mean, there, there's, you got so much history there to, to get comfortable with demand, but tell me how you did diligence and get comfortable with the fact that there every season there would be, um, you know, those people would be lining up and booking and booking tours. Well, so I'd say to your point, um, I mean, competition is a huge one. So if you're going to go down to, I don't know, the Florida Keys or somewhere in Hawaii or, or something, you know, you might have 20 operators that are all going to do the same trip, right? And so that's a very difficult um, dynamic um, from a pricing perspective. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a double whammy because it's one, you're probably not going to have full boats and it's sort of your load factor is the driver of profitability in this industry. And you're also probably not going to have pricing power uh, because you have all this other competition around. And so 
the the areas that are you know, probably come to mind as like voting areas that have a lot of competition, I would say are from our perspective less likely to have interesting operations unless they're very very differentiated. Um, in our case, in the market that we're in, it's 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 a small enough space that there aren't a lot of other competitors, particularly not with large boats, because there's just not enough dockage space available in that area for large boats. Um, and you, for whale watching, you need a large boat to be able to go out far enough to see the whales. Um, so can't really do it on a small boat. And you know what, if someone wants to take six people out on a super fancy small boat, like go for it. Like that's, that's really not our competition. Um, in terms of sustainability demand, you know, one is just looking at the historical, you know, numbers and seeing, you know, how, how, how those have trended, um, you know, partly for us, this was really, you know, how do we feel about Maine tourism in general? Because, you know, you know, Maine has a little over a million year time resident, year time, year round full-time residents, um, and well over 30 million tour, like visitors. Um, and so you can sort of, and, and and the state of Maine, I think, has done a pretty good job of marketing itself as a tourist destination. And, um, you know, the tourism numbers, you know, COVID aside, um, continue to go up and up as a lot of people view Maine as a desirable place for, um, for a summer vacation. And so a lot of it was sort of understanding the tourism dynamics in Maine understanding our regional dynamics. We're kind of right in the middle of Portland and Bar Harbor, which are kind of, if you're going to go to Maine, you're probably going to go to one of those two places. Most people for a Maine vacation um, will sort of start in Portland and drive up the coast to Bar Harbor um, and then back down again, and we're right on the way. So that's sort of a, you know, we're, we're kind of the midweek stop for people. Um, there are some other tourist attractions in our area. So it kind of makes it a hub where it's not just like a random place out in the middle of nowhere. It's, um, you know, got, got other attractions that bring people in. Um, and in terms of the whale watching and puffin tours, um, you know, we're right in an area that I don't know if you know anything about birding or if anybody listens to this podcast is a birder, but puffins are a very special bird that a lot of people have on their bucket list to see and will travel from great distances to come see um, the Atlantic puffins. Um, and we just happen to be close to where uh, pretty much the southernmost uh, part of the Atlantic puffin rehabilitation. Um, and so we're, we're able to get there um, in a reasonable amount of time from our location. Um, can't really do that from Portland or Bar Harbor. It's too far. Um, and uh, whale watching... Um, we're pretty much, there are three providers in Maine, you know, one in Portland, one in the mid coast and one in Bar Harbor. So if you think you're going to come to Maine, um, and go whale watching, you've really got three options and we're one of them. Um, and so that made us feel pretty comfortable that, you know, people would, you know, some people would funnel our way and continue to do that. So kind of all those different factors made us feel comfortable with, with the, um, with the demand picture. Yeah. Well, it, it does to sound like to your headline point that really, you know, that what makes a business, a tourism business uh, appealing is probably going to be pretty idiosyncratic. If you, if you go to a big tourist destination and offer what, you know, 20 other operators are offering, I mean, my audience is sophisticated to realize that that's probably, probably doesn't add up to a good business. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not a great idea. But um, yeah, so you guys, it sounds like you, there were three or four factors uh, really particular to, to Captain Fish that, um, <laughs> and did you, did you recognize, curious, did you yeah. recognize all of those in your analysis prior to acquisition? Yeah, I mean the the previous owner recognized that, you know, yeah. and and he was like, "This is just a good location. It's not huge. It's not too small. It's a you know, it's it you know." And, and he was really the one who brought all of those things to our attention because when we first went to visit him, you know, we had no idea even how to think about it. Um, and I think he was totally right. Um, and, and he was right that, um, you know, tourists will pay more than. Um, locals, because from a from a if you're going to Maine for a vacation for a week, uh, you know that is going to cost you I don't know thousands of dollars, and so you know your boat tour um, is a very small percentage of your overall trip spend, and so you need to be thinking about pricing from the the traveler's perspective, not from the local's perspective who might say, Hey, you know what? I've never paid more than $15 to go on a sightseeing trip where, you know, a a person who's coming from Wisconsin, who's never been to Maine before and is on their, you know, August vacation, you know, they might be willing to pay 25 or 30 and not, and think it's a great deal. And so um, to be a bit more global in your perspective about what people think is a reasonable price um, and not just be looking kind of like in your local market for, for pricing cues. Trish, uh, a couple minutes ago, you said bait and tackily. Um, yeah. Now I, I know what that means. And, and it's a theme that Chenmark uh, writes about a lot. Please share with the audience what you mean by that. Sure. So it's this concept of a, a bait and tackle shop. So um, this idea that, you know, you've gr- drive down a super long windy road to an amazing uh, local fishing um, spot, um, or maybe even nationally recognized fishing spot. Um, and let's say there's one family that owns land that's right by the entrance to this amazing um, fishing location, and they have you know a bait and tackle shop there. And because of their location, um, they are able to um, basically capture all of the demand and um, have uh, pricing power, um, you know, as long as they're still being reasonable, um, you know, for that area. And so the, the, the concept is that, um, you know, bait and tackle shops or that concept um, can generate um, outsized returns or abnormal returns relative to the universe of bait and tackle shops. Now, the problem and why a lot of people don't like to invest in that bait and tackle shop is that, you know, at a certain point in time, um, there you don't have an ability to reinvest in the business, um, and so um, you can't really. You, it has no growth opportunities are very very limited, um, and so a lot of people, particularly in today's age, although that seems to be changing a little bit rapidly in the last couple months, um, you know, people are very very focused on value is equated to growth potential, right, and uh, so. Um, one thing that we really focus on is we really, really like bait and tackle shops because we in the holding company structure have the ability to say, hey, you know what, bait and tackle shop, you generated, you know, you have an excess of a million dollars. You know, if it was just you, maybe the owners would take that. There's no ability to invest it back in the business and and have it grow. Um, But we have the ability to use that to make another acquisition that might be in that space. It might be in something else entirely unrelated. And so we talk a lot about how 
we like bait and tackle shops, whereas you know some other types of investors might view those as uninteresting. And I think that this boat tour business is abnormal relative to the universe of boat tour businesses um, and has the ability to produce outsized uh, returns because of that. So you do consider this a pretty solid boat and, uh, bait and tackle yeah. example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> boat and tackle as the case may be. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Having said all that about growth and, and bait and tackle shops, in fact, you all have made another boat tourism business acquisition. So can you tell me about that? Sure. So um, I would also call this other one very much bait and tackle as well. Um, but we, we recently did an, an acquisition of, of um, I'd say, a semi-local competitor. Um, so somebody, you know, husband-wife team looking to retire. Um, they were um, about 40 minutes away from us um, and in a, in a different harbor, very, very small, um, but had a lot of um, overlap in the types of trips that we um, provide. Um, and so I spoke with our team. Um, so we now have basically three year-round employees, which is very exciting. Um, and uh, our huge management team, um, we talked about, you know, do we want to do this or not? And um, a couple of things. One, we thought that it would be um, a good complement to the offerings that we have. Um, two, um, we have... It, it's hard to have um, sort of consistent captain and crew staffing with just two. Um, it's actually a lot easier with three boats um, because you can share um, captains between the locate and um, and crew between the locations. So having a bit more scale actually we felt would allow us to have more continuity and opportunity for our staff members, which was um, a huge sort of. Um, positive factor um, for us. Um, and essentially, um, we, we could acquire it without incurring any additional or very little um, additional incremental cost, um, overhead cost, um, because our team, our existing team could, could manage it. Um, and so it wouldn't be something that would work for a lot of other businesses, but this would probably be one of our like top competitors. And so it made sense for us. Uh, and yeah, so I guess we can, uh, we, we didn't go into this thinking this would be an opportunity at all. Um, but it just kind of happened this way. And I think we were a natural acquirer for, um, that business. And yeah, so, I mean, we're only whatever, five weeks, six weeks in. So, uh, still, still learning a lot about the business. Um, but and you, you said it was smaller, but what, so what percentage so it only has one boat and it has a smaller number of people who can be on the boat. Um, so it is, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, less than half the size of our current operation. So a hundred seats, each, seats. Yeah. A little over the 300 feet. that you have. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. Um, just tell me quickly about how, despite Captain Fish being a great guy, uh, in fact, he didn't forewarn this one employee where so much so much of your risk was that this was happening until what day one. Tell that story. Yeah, that was a very unfortunate beginning, and they get you know who who knows what what the rationale is. Um, but it essentially was you know one full time employee, very important employee to me, especially since I really 
didn't and still really don't know a lot about boats, um, especially from the perspective of somebody who's been in the boating industry for 20 plus years. You know, I'm very much a novice. Um, and so I kind of need to rely on the people um, around me for, for expertise. Um, and so uh, the, the owner didn't tell um, this individual that the business was up for sale, um, which is really too bad. And then really just told him the day after the sale that um, it was, you know, the business had been sold and this person will be calling you at some point, um, which isn't like the best way to get off the ground with your like new most important person in your life. Um, but to his, to his credit, I know it caused, you know, I think clearly a lot of anxiety because he'd been in the business since college, you know, so um uh, so 20 plus years. So, um, uh, it clearly, you know, was a huge change. And, um, you know, I certainly have a different approach to the business, um, that, than the captain fish did. And, you know, and, and, and to be fair to him, I think he's taken a lot of it, um, in stride and really adapted. And I think we now have a very good, a good working relationship, which, which is great. Again, a, a lot of, um, uh, some luck, luck there. It could have gone yeah. much, much worse. He could have said like, I don't like you, I'm out of here. And that would have really sucked. Um, but thankfully so far it's worked out. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and then Trish, how involved in the business are you, uh, and, 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 and kind of talk about that with respect uh, to all of Chenmark and how, cause you're, you're one of the three partners of Chenmark and you, and it seems like you're giving this particular business a lot of your attention, whereas the Chenmark you know, there are, there are eight other platform businesses that could be getting your attention. So how is all that working? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a small business in, from a, a, a leader, like a, you know, people perspective, whatever. So I was there, you know, a lot the first year, slightly less the next year and, and even less this year. And that is because the team there, um, I think is, uh, very capable and, and, and wants more leadership opportunities. And, so I have, you know, been giving them more and more um, responsibility and autonomy as they've sort of shown that they have the ability to do that um, and step back sort of more, you know, more and more. So um, it, to be honest, I don't even really know what to call myself with regards to the business right now because I am very involved in certain ways. Um, but in other ways, um, I'm really not involved at all. So I'm sort of, I'd say, slowly um handing over, um, sort of management of, of the company and, and the team has done a, a wonderful job there and sort of, they have expressed to me that they want that role, which, which is great. Um, I have a number of other responsibilities within the kind of the, the Chedmark ecosystem. Um, and so it's kind of worked well and, and I foresee us kind of continuing to have that sort of slow transition, um, with, with me taking on other things, you know, this, this acquisition, I would have been less involved this year, if not for this acquisition, where I was obviously really involved with, you know, that getting that closed and transitioned and helping the team through, um, sort of the, the adjustment that they need to make, um, from operating two locations, um, versus just having one um, and the leadership challenges that arise for them and, and their teams that are reporting to them. So, um, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, so I, that's a little bit of a unclear answer, um, but that's sort of the world I'm living in right now. Um, so it's sort of, if anything bad happens, it's my fault, but if the, it does well this season, it's all the team, the team's doing great. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> well, that, it's the That's leadership. Yeah. <laughs> 
Trish, one la- last question for you. You had talked about how you don't really know anything about boats. Even three years in, you're still very much a novice and you rely on the, ge- the gentleman who's the, op- the main operator to for that. Um, so one of the things in our world is how much do you need to know about an industry where you might acquire a business? And I think the conventional wisdom, uh, there's a lot of nuance to this, is that the more the better. So, you know, if you if you know something about that industry, great. Um, but if you don't, depending on how complex the business is, like it, it can be okay. Uh, but it's a con. Like if you're doing your pros and cons of buying a particular business, if you know nothing about that industry, it's definitely the, in, solidly in the con column. Yeah. You all are buying across a wide cross-section of, of businesses, and Captain Fish is a great example of that. Um, how do you think about this question? Um, well, first of all, we try not to buy businesses that are like aerospace manufacturing or so, you know something highly, highly specialized. Um, and you know, and somebody even might say, whatever, landscaping is, you know, do you really need to know anything about that? And I feel like I mean, I kind of go back and forth on this. Like part of our model is buying businesses we don't have a lot of experience in and putting people in place and kind of having them focus on sort of a general management role and relying on the people around them to to get to speed on kind of how the business really works. And, you know, to you know, be, be candid, you know, we have made some hires to run some businesses um, based on that framework that have not worked out well. Um, and we'd have to make changes. Um, and then we've had others that have worked out very, very well. And so I think it ultimately comes down to like a judgment call on the type of business that we're buying, you know, what industry is it in? What sort of structure does it have? What does it have in place? All that sort of stuff. And then, um, who are we bringing in to, to run the business? And do we think they have the ability as well as the humility to kind of figure out, um, what do they know? What do they not know? So, you know, I came into it being very aware and upfront saying like, listen, like I am new to this. I don't know. I don't even know how to turn a boat on. Right. Like I, um, I don't even like driving my car really. So, um, like, <laughs> you know, like, like that's who I am and, and saying like, these are the skills I bring. Like I have a very strong financial background. I have an ability to, um, I think my primary job is to identify talent and, and train it um, and give people opportunity and hold them accountable. And, you know, to, like these are the things I am good at. And in my situation, it was literally one other person saying, like, these are the things you're good at and I'm going to need you to do them. And this is what I expect from you. And can you do that? And then if he, the person couldn't do that, then that's my job to figure out, like, how do I um you know, what do I do then? Um, and, and, um, and so that's kind of, I think it's about understanding what your job is and being humble enough to come in and say like, Hey, I don't know these things. I'm going to need your help. And in most cases, I feel like as long as you don't come in with, you know, a huge ego and start talking about things you like know nothing about and actually try to like listen to people and, and learn and all that sort of stuff. I feel like people are generally pretty willing to help you out. Um, again, it is helpful for us to have a long-term time horizon. So, you know, if you're looking to do something and have a really good, you know, come in, make some changes and sell in five years, like it's probably helpful to know something about the industry before you do that. But, you know, we come in, we start to say like the first year is really a learning year, you know, come in, don't try to make any big changes, try to learn the industry, 
a lot of our CEOs that we place, we, you know, we really focus on you know, make an emphasis on trying to learn the industry um, and the driver, the economic drivers of the industry. The people that we've had that haven't worked out have not really wanted to spend a lot of time truly understanding what drives their business. Um, and that's where we've really um, struggled. But as long as people come in with that attitude, I feel like it's doable as long as you pick mm-hmm. the right businesses. Mm-hmm. Not something too specialized, namely. Yeah. Yeah. Trish, this is great. It's always uh, awesome to talk to you, hear from you, hear about Chenmark generally. Um, weekly, is it Weekly Thoughts? What is the weekly Chenmark thoughts. newsletter? Weekly, weekly thoughts. thoughts. Everybody should uh, sign up. It's one of the, the few things that I open, essentially the moment it hits my, my inbox. It's Friday, late week, Friday usually. And it's, it's just a short essay on you know, what you're thinking about, what you've learned, a, a lesson from uh, the Chenmark experience. And it's, it's written in the first person. Um, it's, it's just great. Do you write that or does one of, one of the other uh, partners? I write most of them. Yeah, it's, it's a team right. effort. I am, James writes an internal... Um, Sunday note and Palmer writes a Sunday note for his team as well. So if I don't have any content, I very often steal their topics, um, (laughs) which I might be doing this week. Um, But I take lead on writing it and then James and Palmer edit it. So if it has typos, that's because it's just the three of us usually doing it. Uh, James and I are usually doing that after our kids go to bed and it's Friday night. So Sometimes the standard goes down a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my mother-in-law is always very nice to email me with my um, errors. Um, so <laughs> always great. When I see the email from her at like eight o'clock on Saturday morning, I'm like, damn it, there were typos. Um, so well, you just reply, yeah. Well, that was your son-in-law not editing properly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sorry, your son. That was your son. Your son yeah. Properly. Well, yeah. both of them actually. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, but it's, it's great. We really enjoy doing it. Um, it's been a great way to kind of build a community around it and, um, as well as, um, time to focus on, uh, reading things and, um, thinking about things that are kind of outside of the day to day, which is I think yeah. really valuable. Totally. Um, yeah. It's, it's right. It's, um, it, it's sort of philosophical, um, yeah. which, which as an operator, you don't always get the chance to do if you don't carve out time for that. And so recommend people get that chenmark.com. You'll see a link for, for, um, for it. And then how can people reach you directly, Trish? Uh, Trish at chenmark.com. And we push weekly thoughts to Twitter, but basically I don't even know how to check it. So that's not a great way of getting in touch with us. Okay. Yeah. Great. Trish, this has been so great. Um, I'm going to see what I can find on Biz Buy Sell in terms of uh, a, a boat, boat tourism companies, recognizing that probably most of them are not something I want to buy, but still intriguing. <laughs> I'm, I'm very intrigued by the category. So thank you cool. so much for sharing and giving your time. Of course. Happy to. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.